cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Jeff Immelt, and he is the former chief executive officer of General Electric, one of America's biggest and best known companies. I was really impressed not only with his book, Hot Seat, but with our conversation. He, he's absolutely forthright. He takes complete ownership of the errors that were made at General Electric. I mean, by and large, they got more right than wrong. And to be blunt, I think he inherited a mess from Jack Welsh, who I've described as the most overrated CEO in history. There was an accounting scandal lurking there. Uh, Jack paid himself an obscene amount of money, a $460 million severance package and just, you know, manipulating earnings, pulling a magic penny out of GE Capital. And I gave Immelt every opportunity to throw Welsh under the bus, and he refused to. In fact, he could not have been more generous to his predecessor, who um, not only gave him a company with a ticking time bomb in it, um, but a big conglomerate industrial company with a 50 P.E., how is it not inevitable that GE's stock price was going to come back to earth? A 15 or a 20 PE is, is reasonable for an industrial conglomerate, not 50. And so the stock performance was more or less you know, out of his hands. He is super knowledgeable, really uh, uh, just a tremendous guy. Under different circumstances, I think his reputation as a CEO and a leader would be up there amongst the best in the world. But because of the situation he stepped into, literally his first day of work was September 10th, 2001, and he tells some fascinating stories about it. I found the book to be really interesting, totally transparent, very honest, and very educational. There's a lot to learn from his experiences, and uh, just really a fascinating person with an incredible work history and, and just a lot to share. Uh, he now is teaching at Stanford Business School and is a venture partner at one of the larger venture capital funds. So with no further ado, my conversation with former GE CEO, Jeff Immelt. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Jeff Immelt. He joined General Electric in 1982 in the plastics, appliances, and healthcare division. He eventually led GE's medical systems division from 97 to 2000, rising to the role of CEO where he led General Electric from 2001 to 2017. His new book is Hot Seat, What I Learned Leading a Great American Company. Jeff Immelt, welcome to Bloomberg. Hey, Barry, thanks. It's great to be here. So tell us a bit about your path to becoming the CEO of one of America's crown jewels. Your dad was an employee at GE, wasn't he? Yeah, Barry, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, my dad was a career kind of manufacturing guy in our aviation business. So I kind of grew up in the shadow of the company, if you will. Um, I you know, went away to school and, uh, and went to a business school, and I graduated in 1982. And it wasn't necessarily that my father had worked there, but what I thought I'd do is go someplace where I could learn to be a manager, you know, kind of learn what general management was like. Uh, GE had a great reputation. So I went to work in 1982 in the plastics business. I thought I'd stay 
uh, five years and I ended up staying 35 years. So, you know, I would say uh, careers are based on performance and luck. And my career had uh, both of those. I, I started in the plastics business really commercially, selling in uh, Detroit and in the western half of the U.S., and that was uh, really interesting and fun. I learned so much by uh, selling to big companies like General Motors and Ford, which at that time were kind of the giants of American industry, and, and they were really a challenge. And then I had my first real break when I was in my early 30s. I was moved to our appliance business to uh, run the service business during a major product recall. And so I was at a very high-profile job at a very young age that was extremely difficult. I had lots of exposure to uh, Jack Welch early in his uh, CEO tenure. And, you know, I think getting noticed at an early age is actually, you know, one of the things that helps people push them along in their career. Uh, I later went back to the plastics business. And then right before I became... Uh, CEO, in 1995, I went to our healthcare business, and that was just a perfect fit. It was a relatively small business, but it was very technical, very global. It played to a lot of my strengths, and that was the platform that ultimately I, I moved from to become CEO of the company in 2001. So before we move to your tenure as CEO, I, I have to ask, when you started, the medical systems division was relatively small. But that eventually became a pretty substantial growth driver. Tell us a little bit about the General Electric Medical Systems Division you ran. Yeah, so, you know, I went there. Again, I, I had been really in the appliances and plastics, and I went there in 1995. And I remember I had been there for about two months, and I was talking to uh, Jack on the phone. And, and I said, you know, Jack, uh, this is a huge industry, you know, trillions of dollars. Uh, it seems to me like we've got a you know, pretty good footprint. A lot of people respect us. But our business is a peanut. It's $3 billion. You know, we, we need to be uh, more adventurous. We need to be uh, uh, taking more risk. And I, I think he, it just resonated with him. It was kind of the right comment at the right time. And he became quite encouraging right, right after that to both do acquisitions, but also to help grow globally and invest in organic growth and technology. So, uh, you know, to your point, and so that from $3 billion became a $21 billion business by the time I retired. And, you know, yet today, it's still, you know, there's plenty of opportunities in healthcare. So it, it played to my strengths. I, I would say in my career, I was a good product manager. I was good at, you know, kind of marketing and sales. I knew how to strategically think my way through a business problem. And all of those things kind of came to the forefront when I was in GE's healthcare business. So you become CEO. Your first day on the job is September 10th, 2001. Tell us about your second day on the job. What was that like? Yeah, so, you know, you have to kind of understand the era a little bit. You know, the 90s were just a moment of tranquility in the U.S. economy. The economy was growing. The U.S. was the dominant player in the world. The world was at peace. And so that was kind of the, let's say, the environment in which I grew my career, at least the last part of my career before I became CEO. And so September 11th happened, and it was just a horrible tragedy. And to a certain extent, even though we didn't know it at the time, it really marked a change in the world, right? It, it marked a change in uh, globalization, how companies were viewed, uh, what tail risk was. So there's a bunch of stuff that, that actually happened. But from a practical standpoint, you know, here I was. I had run, let's say, a $7 billion healthcare business, and now all of a sudden I'm running a hundred-whatever-billion-dollar conglomerate. And a day into my job, I had to start making decisions. There was no honeymoon. There was no prep time. I had to start making important decisions, like do we lend airlines money? What do, we, do we restructure our aviation business? How should we think about insurance? 
And I'm doing that in real time in the first, second, third, fourth week on the job. I had to communicate now to several hundred thousand people who kind of looked in horror at uh, what was going on in New York City. I had two employees that died tragically in the uh, in the event. So, you know, kind of there was just no warm up and no prep to get ready for making billion dollar decisions late at night that you know had to be made under pressure. And um, you know, I just grew up quick quickly in that in that uh, in that context. Like like most crises do, you know, it's. Um, you, you just don't have a chance. You know, it's kind of like life gets lived forward, not backward. And so I was experiencing that in real time that I had to kind of, you know, there was no way to kind of say, okay, I'm going to sit this one out. You were just living life as it, as it came. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. So I like the way you use the chapter structure, the titles of each chapter, to go into a, a deep dive about all sorts of broad topics in, in leadership. And one of your chapters are, is Leaders Persevere in a Crisis. Give us a little details about how you persevered. Let's start with September 11th, and, and then we could go on to what you learned about crisis management at Fukushima. Yeah, so I think, Barry, maybe we'll take three of them. Let's take uh, 9-11, um, then let's take the global financial crisis, and then we'll take Fukushima. Because I had all of those, let's say, between 2001 and 2011. I, I think in 9-11, the, in the, uh, you know, what you learned is, uh, is, is really two things, I would say. One was that during a crisis, you have to hold two truths, and, and one is, that the worst thing that, you know, can happen. And the other thing is that you shouldn't give up hope that a better future uh, is out there once you make it to the other side. So uh, we had to restructure our commercial aviation business because clearly airlines were going to be traveling less. But in 2002, uh, Alan Mulally, who was at Boeing at the time, he launched the, the idea of the Dreamliner, which was a revolutionary new aircraft that was going to take a billion dollars to make the engine. And we won that, that, uh, that order and that commitment. So we made a billion dollar decision at the absolute worst time in the history of the industry. And so you need to hold two truths at the same time. I think the other one is just the need for communication. I, I think so much changed around nine 11. And what you really find is that, uh, in a crisis, you have to be willing to talk about what you know and what you don't know, and people just want to hear uh, your voice. So those, those were uh, the two things I learned. Uh, during the financial crisis, the financial crisis, I think, just in, if you're in financial services, probably the three months after Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, there's just no describing how every day brought a new challenge Every day brought fear, and it was just you just really had to be uh, on your toes, you know, kind of 24 hours a day. And what I learned in that crisis was that you needed to have contingencies. You, you needed to have, like, I'm going to try this one day. I'm going to do something else the next day. It doesn't work. And so you just had to take wave after wave of contingencies. You learn that leaders have to absorb fear. I mean, one of the things that was unique about GE in that time is that we, you know, half our company was in financial services, but 
but the other half was doing fine. It was in healthcare and aviation and a whole series of different businesses. So, you know, it was incumbent on me not to allow anything that was going on in financial services to spill over into the other parts of, uh, of the company. So you really learned that you, you have to stay flexible and you have to absorb fear. And then when I moved to Fukushima, you know, what I learned in Fukushima is the importance of risk management. So Fukushima was a, uh, it was a tsunami in Japan, and it, it impacted uh, seven nuclear reactors, forward GE, that were installed in the 1960s and early 1970s. And I was in Australia when it happened. I was traveling. And I had my assistant send me the contract that was from the 1960s that we had signed with the uh, with TEPCO, who is the big Japanese utility, right. just to kind of read what it said and 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 read you know what our liabilities might be and things like that. And, and I was so impressed by the work that our lawyers and engineers had done in the 1960s to envision all kinds of natural disasters and all kinds of contingencies. And, you know, I would say, unlike the other terrorist events, in the case of Fukushima, there just was a very robust uh, risk management process that even foresaw a horrible natural disaster like the one in Fukushima. So every crisis is different. I think a little bit about COVID today and what's similar and what's different. But uh, I think the things that are always true are the, the leader's, Necessity to absorb fear, to hold two truths, to make timely decisions, and to be a good communicator, even if what you're communicating is you don't know. So, And as one of your chapters is titled, leaders also have to maintain optimism. Yep. I think, again, it's uh, there's a lot that gets written today about it's better to be a pessimist than an optimist, but I think, I think you always have to understand that what you know, you have to lead people through the toughest times, but you need to show them what the future could look like if you if you really work well together. Yeah, there's a wonderful book about, quote, the triumph of the optimists that just explain why the pessimistic perspective in the 20th century was really the wrong side of the trade. Yeah. Before we leave your career and start delving more into General Electric, I have to just ask a couple of questions about what you're doing post-GE. How do you enjoy teaching at Stanford? Yeah, so I teach a class at Stanford on what we call systems leadership, but it's really leading through disruption. And I'd say I, I always wanted, this, this will be my fourth year, I always wanted to kind of try my hand at teaching. By the way, Barry, it's a lot harder than I ever thought it was going to be. <laughs> but I think uh, students... Uh, you know, they're so smart today. They, they keep you young. They're very hungry for not just the theoretical, but the practical experience. And I, I think one of the things that, uh, you, you know, when you're, when you're a business school student, you think you know it all. And one of the things that, uh, that I always hearken back to them is, look, every job looks easy till you're the one doing it, right? You may have read a case and you think the CEO is a dummy, but someday you're going to be that dummy, right? Someday you're going to be in those shoes, and you're going to have to make the decisions, and you can't judge them, and, and uh, some will work and some won't. And so your ability to persevere through that kind of criticism is really key to who you are and what you'll do. And then I also do venture capital. I always wanted to work when I retired with small companies, with innovators, with founders, mainly in healthcare, but a little bit in tech. And I have to say, between the teaching and my venture work, I, I really like it. I really enjoy it. I think it's a way to, for me to stay fresh, but it's also a way for me to give back to leaders of the future and hopefully help them through their, uh, through their journey. Hmm. So you're a venture partner at New Enterprise Associates, which is one of the larger venture right. shops out in California. How different is it? Thinking about companies that are tiny, really at the conception, with the potential of of changing the paradigm versus running a behemoth conglomerate? Yeah, you know, that's a really great question. In some ways, it's extremely different, right? Because, you know, at GE, we just had massive scale and massive 
diversity. And and uh, when you're in a startup, you're small and you really focus on one thing. I mean, most startups go narrow and deep, and that's what makes them successful. And then they begin to grow. So on one hand, that, those are very different. On the other hand, whether you're going from 10 employees to 100 or 100 to 1,000, learning to scale is an important trait, is an important skill, and something that every startup has to do. And that's something that I can be very helpful with. You know, how do you, how do you hire first-line managers? How do you put in performance systems? What does a good human resource leader look like? Those are a lot of the questions that many of the founders I work with are asking and, and I can be extremely helpful in that regard. So, so you know, what, what, what you try to do when you're in a role like mine is find what is most useful with the company you're working with and play that role. I, I guarantee you there's something I can be helpful with on every company, but there's some things that my skill set doesn't play as much for, and, and I don't try to overdo it. I try to just find my niche and, and play it uh, as well as I can. Huh, quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges of running such a big company. What was it like managing 300,000 employees? Well, I think that, you know, you've got to think about several things when you manage its size. You know, one is you've got to divide the company up into what I would call both vertical and horizontal cohorts, right? So in the case of a conglomerate, you've got many different businesses, and ultimately, for most of the people in the company, the business is who they identify with. So that's, that's what I call a vertical group. You have to create a horizontal network. So you basically look at, you know, kind of officers of the company or senior VPs or business leaders, and you want them to be part of a collective whole. You want them to drive common initiatives. You want them to be accountable for each other. In terms of uh, in terms of mission and metrics and things like that, you've got to instrument the company in a way that you know whether you're doing well or doing poorly. So so metrics are important. And, and lastly, you know Barry, it, you know if you if you go through change, there's probably two or three or four initiatives that you want to embrace across the company because your unique scale uh, can really drive substantial change, right? So, so it's, it's really about communication. It's about creating good cohorts. It's about metrics. And it's about one or two or three really good initiatives that can leverage your scale. But you work it every day because, you know, size can be a, an awesome advantage. It also can be a huge disadvantage. And you're always teetering right between making it an advantage and, and letting it be a disadvantage. Hmm. Interesting. So becoming um, public is less and less popular these days than it used to be. How do you balance the various constituencies between your employees, your customers, your shareholders, and your board of directors? That seems like a lot of balls to keep in the air all at once. Yeah, look, it's, this is, you know, I've heard this question asked, you know, in many different ways over many different eras, and it's it's still, you know, the answers change over time. They're never totally satisfying, but that's part of the paradox of running a public company. So I, I, I would say, you know, the answer is that investors own the company, and unless you're you're doing something that that is aligned with them, um, you're going to get in trouble. Right. So so there, there is a sense that if you're a public company, investors have a huge say. Increasingly, particularly when I compare 2021 with, let's say, 2001, the intersection between companies and society has ne and, and government has never been greater than it is today. Right. Government is a big actor in every industry, and that's not going to change. So. So investors are key. Government and society, hugely important today versus the past. And then, you know, having led through a couple, three or four crises, in a crisis, the people that matter most are your employees. 
you know, so in other words, like, like when you're, when you're taking incoming every day, the only way to get out of a problem, the only way to get out of a mess is if your team is aligned and if you can help bring them uh, with, uh, help them, you know, have them help you solve the problem. So it's complicated. Uh, it's more complicated, to be honest with you, today than it was 20 years ago. But there's never going to be a, a, a nice, simple, easy answer to your question. So in the book, I, I found your criticism of the underinvestment at GE for the decades that preceded your tenure was pretty legitimate considering this is the company founded by Thomas Edison. How much underinvestment in R&D took place at General Electric prior to your tenure, and what were the ramifications of that underinvestment? Yeah, so, you know, I, I took over for a really good CEO uh, who was extremely well-known and who was, I would say, in the, in the decade of the 90s, you know, was really kind of leveraging that decade where uh, I would say financial services and management practices were valued and what most journal managers worked on were those two things. And so when we got to the end of the 1990s, GE was a company that had, let's say, a relatively stale industrial portfolio a very vibrant and fast growth financial services uh, set of businesses and a market multiple that exceeded a tech company. So we were just imbalanced. Um, you know, it wasn't that our, you know, our industrial businesses all had high market share, but they weren't necessarily technical leaders. And we had not been investing as robustly in, in uh, R&D and in innovation as we should have. And, you know, if you looked at, let's say, you know, the top uh, 150 people in the company that are called vice presidents or officers, only three were engineering leaders, right? So if you think about the size of GE, and that's kind of symbolic of what was valued in terms of the organization and the functions, you know, that's kind of where we were in 2000. So um, we had a strong balance sheet. We had many good things. We just, we just hadn't spent enough time thinking about how to be an innovator in the 21st century. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I love the story early in the book of you after you've been named as the incoming CEO, but before you uh, actually start the job out golfing with some college buddies and you're getting dressed in the locker room and some random person comes up to you. You start chatting and uh, you're wearing something with a GE logo and he says to you, um, well, at least you're not that poor bastard has to follow Jack Welsh as CEO. Yeah, no, it, was, it was a funny story. So I'm, I'm in the locker room and I, I just met him and I, I would ask him for directions and he says, well, what do you do? I said, oh, I'm playing with some friends, but I work at GE. And he said, gee, huh? Boy, I feel sorry for that poor son of a bitch that's going to follow Jack Welch. <laughs> so <laughs> I went out to the first tee, and we just spent the day laughing. But, you know, when you replace a famous guy, uh, you're always going to have a certain, uh, you, know, you know, kind of a complicated path. And, and I would say, uh, you know, the main difference, Barry, is just the, the era of the 2000s were just so different than the era of the 90s. Uh, the company had to change. No doubt about that. And Jack Welsh certainly was a tough act to follow. What specific challenges did you encounter after he left as CEO? And did he set you up to succeed? Oh, gosh, I think um, I think the challenges were to reframe the company's portfolio and rejuvenate the industrial businesses, uh, you know, for the 21st century. And so I, I think that was kind of job number one. Uh, job number two was to maintain, sustain as many of the key leaders inside the company as, as we could. There's always going to be a moment of time when people have a certain comfort with how one CEO did it, and they're gonna they're gonna kind of wait and see are they on uh, the new guy's team, and then 
I'd say the third thing was to find a way to bring our investors uh, with us. Uh, one of the things that, you know, Jack and I did a few transition meetings with investors while he was still chairman and I was coming in. And I just felt like investors didn't really understand the company. He, he just had such command, such charisma, such presence. Um, there, there just wasn't a lot of questioning and depth. And, uh, you know, when you're the, the new guy, you're not going to be accorded the same level of trust, if you will. So I'd say those are the three challenges that faced me uh, taking over the company. You know, the good part is we had a, we had a strong balance sheet, for sure. And, uh, you know, we had, we had good leaders, uh, even though those leaders were going to have to change uh, for what I felt like the company was going to face in the 21st century. Hmm. Interesting. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Some people have called him the best CEO in America. What are some of the more important lessons you learned from Jack? Yeah, so uh, when I... So when in the year 2000, uh, Jack was named the best manager by Fortune of the previous century. So that's a pretty tall shadow. Um, I'd say what Jack did better than anybody I've seen before or after was he knew to he he really knew how to manage scale. He he knew how to manage at size, and and he was incredibly skilled at that. So he, he, he created an aura. So it, it, let's say in a company of 300,000 people, everybody thought they worked for Jack. Everybody felt like he could intersect in their world uh, any, it, it, at any moment of, of the day. He was a great communicator. He, he, he knew how to communicate to hundreds of thousands of people, to a thousand people, to 500 people, to 20 people, to one person. At almost every size, he, he, he knew how to communicate. He, he built horizontal cohorts, Barry, what I talked about earlier. Of He, he knew how to kind of segment organizations and, and, and how to motivate different groups of people. He did a great job of, of creating the right kind of instrumentation, the right kind of metrics that drove a good behavior. He prioritized and the last thing is he, he, and this is going to sound funny today, but I think he was the first manager of his era that really understood the power of people. He, he treated human resource leaders with respect. He, he spent a lot of time on people. You, you know, if you, if you go back in the, let's say, 70s, 80s, 90s, even 90s, most of the human resource professionals had come out of union relations based on where the U.S. was and that moment in time, he kind of recognized it was all about the professional workforce, and he spent a lot of time in that. So I really think I've never seen a CEO before or after that could manage its size the way Jack could. He was just awesome at that. Hmm. So you inherited a bunch of ticking time bombs, um, whether it was the accounting scandal or the mess at GE Capital. You could have very easily in the book thrown Welsh under the bus, but you chose not to. In fact, you were very, very generous to Jack in the book. Tell us about your thought process. A lot of the headaches you were dealing with, you inherited from him. You know, so Barry, the way to think about the book is, 
you know, kind of for 20 years, I've more or less kept my mouth shut. And, and I generally felt like the reason to do that was that nobody at GE would benefit by me squabbling uh, with Jack. Um, what I tried to do in this book was be truthful, was to talk about uh, the things I learned from him, the things I loved being around him for, but some of the places where the company had blind spots that needed to be fixed, like the ones we talked about earlier was, um, uh, you know, kind of lack of investment in technology, uh, lack of globalization, uh, not a good track record on diversity, you know, uh, things like that, right, as it, as it pertains to where GE was. So I, I wanted the book to be, you know, kind of an accurate perception of what it felt like to follow a guy who is a really great leader, but in a time that was very different. And, and that's, um, that's really what I tried to do. And, and again, I, I loved working for the guy, uh, but he was, a complicated, he was a complicated leader to follow. He was a great leader to work for, you know, and, and maybe your listeners, maybe your listeners in their own workplace, you know, have had similar experiences where sometimes people are great to be a colleague with or great to learn from, but they're not as much fun to follow. And that was kind so, of the, the, the experience I had with Jack. Hmm, interesting. When you were in the healthcare division, you identified what you thought could be a really significant acquisition, AccuSun which Jack passed on uh, saying, oh, Cal it's in California, the people out there are crazy. Siemens ended up buying it, and it was hugely successful for them. Was this a case of a little political bias clouding his judgment? What was around some of those missed yeah. opportunities? So, so the book that Jack wrote, and the expression he used while he was CEO is, control your destiny. You know, right, control your destiny, and I think his feeling about kind of the entrepreneurial systems in California was that you could never control them, right? And this was kind of a '90s perspective. You see, here today, if you're a CEO of any kind of company, you really recognize you can't control much of anything, and that and that what you really need to be talking about is, you know, what are the right investments. What are the right risks to take? How do you grab the future? You know, those kinds of things are more operational than, than controlling your destiny. So I remember the discussion that he and I had. This was in the very early 2000. And I, I was in the G boardroom pitching this deal. And I thought I had it done. And he said, well, you can't do it uh, because it's in California. And I just looked across the table at him and said, you got to be kidding me. Really, this is really like California's part of the world. In fact, it's an important part of the world. But, you know, that's just, I think in some ways it's a generational difference. It certainly was a philosophical uh, difference. Yeah, to say, say the least. I think in the 90s, California, if it was its own country, would have been the eighth largest economy in the world, something like that. Just think of everything that's happened since then. You know, if anything, right. this is only more true, not less true. So. Right, right. In the book, you, you mentioned the infamous GE chase plane. Tell us about that. There were always rumors and stories about it. Um, what, what was that about? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, th this was a, something that was put in place by security. It was really, you know, for, particularly for global travel, it was really a bad practice. Um, you know, to be honest, I never spent one minute talking to the people that ran our corporate travel, you know, corporate air group. I should have. But, you know, it's, it's the, you know, there, there's no way to explain it other than say it was a bad practice and I wish we hadn't done it. Chapter 11, you write, leaders are accountable. And again, given the problems in GE Capital, given some of the issues you inherited, why not call Jack out to account? You know, again, uh, Barry, I, I wanted this to be really m my story, if you will, and and the ability that, that I would have to put more context around uh, the company that I love. 
And so I really focused on the, 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 the issues I had and wanted to put, uh, let's say, a finer point on. Um, one of the reasons why I wrote the book is that I, I spent three or four years after I retired kind of watching the way this story was covered, and I just felt like it had lacked any perspective and any context. And actually, in Chapter 12, I, I kind of go through the four or five things that I clearly would have done differently had I had I thought about them differently or had more time uh, to reflect. And and what I talk about in that chapter is I would have I would have more dramatically changed the shape of the company right after 9/11. I, I think any time a crisis takes place, uh, a, a leader has an opportunity to really reshape uh, the situation that, that they're in. I talked about the. the the, the lack or, or our inability to get more value out of GE Capital. I, I said I would have run the company differently to produce a different kind of leader, uh, that I gave my board too many things to work on, and I, I, I wish I had said I don't know more. And, and I talk about that in Chapters 11 and 12. So I really wanted to focus on my role and, and just let the story play out around Jack and let readers draw whatever conclusions they want. That's fair enough. That's all anyone could ever ask. So, Jeff, I love what you did with the structure of your chapter titles. Leaders learn every day. Leaders invest in growth. Leaders are transparent. Tell us a little bit about how you came up with this structure. It really works well for this sort of book. Yeah, you know, so... I decided to write a book in the second half of 2018. I hired a co-writer, a woman named Amy Wallace. She spoke to 75 uh, people. We decided to write the book more or less chronological. And I had a few of my colleagues kind of writing it side by side contemporaneously. So I took kind of an outside-in view. And, And what it basically is, if you read the book, is a series of stories that happened more or less chronologically from 2000, you know, really from 1982, but really from 2001 to 2017. And then we sat back and said, okay, what's the, what's the message in, in, in each one of these stories, right? So, you know, 9-11, leaders show up, right? Uh, my career, leaders learn every day. You know, early on, leaders invest in growth. At the end, leaders are optimists. So, so we basically did the chapter titles last after really seeing here are all the stories. And, 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 you know, what I tried to do, Barry, for the reader was, you know, kind of put them in my shoes on how we made the decisions we made, what decisions we made, but also how I felt, you know, like when I was uncertain, when I was certain, when I was wrong, those kinds of things. So I, I think we, we basically told a story, and then we sat back and said, okay, here's what people can benefit from. Here's what people can learn. Huh. Interesting. So there are a couple of headings. I, I want to give you an opportunity to go into a little more details. One that I thought was interesting was leaders make big companies small. Explain. Yeah, so right after the financial crisis, I was really kind of burnt out. And I was trying to uh, remotivate myself. And one of the things I decided to do was just spend more time connecting with people. So I began kind of a, a weekend, uh, uh, one, one weekend every month, I would fly a leader in and we would have dinner on a Friday night and then spend five or six hours on a Saturday without phones ringing. And I did this for eight years, and it was just a way wow. to connect. We, we retooled a lot of our training programs and systems and the ways we communicated just to focus on connection. And, and really what we were trying to do was beef up the, the, let's say, the software around the company so that we, we, we felt like we were getting more fluid communication, that, that people were attached to each other. And, and uh, so that's, I think, what's chapter six in the book, which is really talking about it at the core of any culture is connection and the extent to which people feel connected to their leaders or feel connected to each other. That's how you make a big company small. You make, you make a big company small by, 
by having people see other people and not org charts or financial metrics or, or advertisements or other things. And that's what we try to describe in Chapter 6. So now let's take the opposite of small. Leaders compete around the world. That's about as big as it gets. So I, I try to describe this in the sense of a big change initiative, but a change initiative that basically was one where we had to kind of rewire our frame of thinking. And, and this is a place where size and scale actually can be helpful, but only if you're empowering the front line. And so we went through a real change process inside the company to empower frontline leaders around the world, gave them capability and investment to win in the countries that they're in. And I, I also talk in that, in that chapter just about the way globalization was changed, that, that, you know, in 2000, everybody talked about doing trade deals. By 2010, there, were no more, there was no more discussion about trade deals. Protectionism was everywhere. I always tell people that President Trump didn't invent protectionism. He just Americanized it. And so, and so global leaders had to be changing in order to, uh, in order to uh, uh, make progress. And one of the parts of that chapter is the discussion on China. And probably, you know, there may be people that are more experienced in Asia than I am, but not many. So I have a point of view on China, and I, I talk about that as well in terms of how to think about it in a global setting. Yeah, you, you write, China matters most. Explain that a little bit. Yeah, just, I just say, you know, again, there's a military context that's important that, that I'm not necessarily the best to speak about. But from an economic standpoint, there's no going back. You know, China is going to be as big as the U.S. Their, their economic influence is huge. Our allies trade with them as much as they trade with us. The market is vast for most things American companies do. And we either learn, learn how to compete there or we learn how to compete against them, but they're a factor. And one of the things that worries me is that when I see my students at Stanford or I see young people, they feel like they, they don't have to compete in China. They, they hmm. feel like uh, that the American government can protect them or China doesn't play by the right rules and, and all this conversation I think that's bad, right? My, my generation had to learn how to compete in China. It was our only path. And uh, in many ways, GE did it as well as anybody. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. So let's address some of those student concerns. You have issues in China with them hacking and stealing intellectual property, really all the way down to things like uh, the design of, of an aircraft engine. And you also have a structure that is not exactly a level playing field for any foreign competition that wants to come in. They force partnerships. They force the sharing uh, of, of data and processes. Isn't it a legitimate complaint by students sure. saying, hey, I don't want to go to China. They don't play by the rules. Sure. I think, I think there's everything to be said that in the past, certainly, uh, intellectual property was uh, uh, critical and, and um, uh, uh, there are challenges that are put in front of you for sure. Uh, but, you know, Barry, G had a $4 billion healthcare business in China that was more profitable than it was in the U.S., uh, we had higher market share in turbines in China than we had in Germany. We had 75% wow. market share of aircraft engines uh, in, in the country where 
more planes are being purchased than any other country in the world. So I'm not saying to be naive, and I'm not saying not to be careful, but if you're going to stay out of the largest uh, market in the world for many of the things we do, including tech, um, this is going to be a different place in 10 or 15 or 20 years than it is right now. In other words, they're going to continue to be a country on the move, uh, the European Union does more trade in China than they do in the U.S. Uh, you know, there's just all kinds of statistics you can look at. So my hope is for the Biden administration to be very forceful on creating a level playing field. But uh, my hope is that we don't disengage. Fair enough. You mentioned turbines. For a while, GE Power was booming um, you would think the move to renewables would be right in their sweet spot. What has that division done right, and why are they not bigger? You would think this is a perfect environment for them. Oh, look, I agree. I, 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 I still think our power business is a good business. I, I, I think it's being well run today, but it wasn't well run. We, we, we had some of the wrong leaders in place for a while, and I, and I own that, but I, my sense is they're they're, it's a good team now. Um, with wind energy, they built you know in excess of a fifteen billion dollar business. With gas turbines, they still have a, 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 a very strong position as well as uh, new grid technologies. I think I think the challenging place in the power space today is solar, because the equipment makers in solar lose money, and the only people that earn money are, are kind of in the project finance side. And so I think in order to be more successful there, GE has to kind of invest more in the project finance side and solar. But look, a third of the world still doesn't have electricity, and, and there's going to be a real transition from hydrocarbons to, to renewables that, that takes place over decades. It's not going to take place in a year or two, and GE should uh, participate in that. Huh, very interesting. Let's talk about consultants. They play such a large role in so many businesses. What do you think of the role of consultants in strategy? Did GE use a lot of consultants, whether it was Arthur Anderson or McKinsey or, you know, insert your favorite consultancy here? What's your views on this? Look, I think we used our fair share. I I always think it's good to get an external perspective. They shouldn't be here to operate the company. They're here to give you a perspective. I never like to rely on one group or another. I like to mix of different perspectives. But I think there's always, there's always room to get an outside uh, view. You know, my sense today is the largest clients for consultants are really private equity and, and uh, you know, some of the people that are in kind of the serial acquisition business. And I think that's a place where consultants can be of most use, where, where you basically have a, a financial firm that has capital, that wants to make an investment, they want to get market data and insight, and consultants can really provide a tremendous uh, value there. So they, their, their business model has evolved uh, as well. Um, but again, I think external perspectives are always good. And firms like McKinsey, you know, they, they just have good people and they can bring good perspectives to, uh, to your decision-making. Hmm. Talk a little bit about succession planning. It was a a factor in the transition from your predecessor to you, and you describe in the book grooming various candidates and prepping the the transition process. What went right at GE during various transitions and what went wrong? Yeah, look, I mean, my, my transition clearly didn't go the way any of us had planned. It was it was a little bit rushed, I would say. There were certainly problems in markets uh, that, that I left behind that, that I wish hadn't taken place that made my successor's job tougher. But I'd say two other things you know, kind of hurt that process. Um, one was uh, my, my uh, successor, who's a good, a, a good guy, a guy that I supported and, and really thought could do the job. He had to come in and make a lot of fast decisions, and that didn't play to his strength. And, and I would say the board was in a little bit of disarray as well. So if you add in tough markets, 
not playing to somebody's strengths and a little bit of disarray on the board, that's a, that's a chemistry that, that just doesn't work. I go back to when I took over. Look, I had uh, fast decisions to make, for sure. Uh, I was probably a little bit more skilled or, or more willing to make those decisions, but I had a really stable and mature board, and 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 that wasn't the case probably 17 years later. So I own my share of the blame in, in all those, and it's it's hard to get it right, uh, particularly given you know kind of the the complicated world we live in today. Hmm. Well, well, you own up a, a lot of errors in the book, and you take responsibility for your tenure. What do you think the company doesn't get enough credit for, and what do you think you don't get enough credit for, considering you spent a few hundred pages essentially accepting blame for so much? Yeah, look, I mean, I, mean, I think what I, what I wanted to do again in the book was to provide, you know, context. So, over, over 16 years, we generated more earnings and cash flow than the previous 110 years combined. Uh, we were leaders in the industries we were in. Uh, we developed good good team. You know, there's probably more than 30 people uh, that worked for me that went on to run Fortune 500 companies, public companies, and we had good initiatives, whether it was globalization or digitization, I could go down the list. Uh, on the flip side, uh, our, our price-earnings ratio went from 50 to 15. So the stock uh, didn't work the way any of us wanted. Uh, we didn't get value as we went through the transition of G capital. And uh, the succession didn't work the way any of us wanted. So... You know, I, I, I guess what I wanted to do with the book is show that we got more right than we got wrong. We, 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 we did a lot of good work as a team, and I didn't want that to get lost. And at the same time, I, I think in this generation, all leadership is crisis leadership. And Lord knows we work through more than our fair share. So I, I, huh. I felt like other readers and other leaders could get something out of the book. That's an interesting line. Um, all leadership is, is crisis leadership. These When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. You know, you mentioned the P.E. ratio. I think that what happened to you was more or less inevitable, given that you came in with a 50 P.E., that was pumped up by both the 90s bull market. You arrived just as, as that was deflating. Jack played the media better than anybody and never hesitated to show up on CNBC, which was a, a General Electric-owned property, and burnished his, his reputation. So you showed up. Wasn't it all but inevitable that the PE multiple had a return back to something resembling normal, a, a 15 to 20 price earnings ratio for a giant conglomerate, that's still pretty much what, what the average is. Isn't, isn't that what a typical conglomerate yeah. gets? Yeah, no, no, it's, yeah. It's, um, yeah. I mean, what I I'm saying, asking is, it wasn't it inevitable that GE had to come back down to earth following the prior 20 years? Sure. And again, that's... Um, you know, Barry, what I try to do is just tell the story. You know, in other words, what I, what I wanted to do is just start on day one and end the day I walked out the door and talk about my colleagues, the decisions we made, 
and let and let people just have a full set of facts. You, you know, look, there's there's not a day that doesn't go by that I don't think about the company. I, I know some people feel like I let them down. I get that, but but I by the same token, look, I, I worked with some great people. We we always did our best, and and what I try to do in the book is just tell a complete a, a complete story, and let other people judge. Who was good? Who was bad? You know, and just let it speak for itself. That, that's really what I try to do with the book. Well, I think you succeeded. The book was not only fair; I thought it was generous. Before we let you go, let's jump to some of our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Starting with, given that we're all working from home and and under pandemic conditions, what are you streaming these days? Tell us your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime show? Yeah, so we're doing Amazon Prime, a show called Tell Me Your Secrets. Uh, my wife and I like mysteries, and this is really a mystery. And uh, it's a fun watch for about halfway through, but that's kind of uh, what we do on podcasts. You know, I like um, I like Stan McChrystal's podcast, No Turning Back. Mm-hmm. I did Freakonomics. I've always been kind of, I've always liked the different angle the Freakonomics uh, uh, takes place. And I think in the course of watching the book, I've 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 found some new podcasts that I'm going to go back and um, and listen to. So yeah, that's but but to your point, there's probably nobody that's benefited more from the pandemic than Netflix has. <laughs> it's Netflix and Peloton's world. We we just live in it. Exactly. Tell us about some of your early mentors who helped shape your career along the way. Yeah, I had two mentors. Uh, the first one was a was a, the leader of the plastics business when I was young. Uh, when I was a young manager, it was a, a gentleman named Glenn Heiner, and and he was, you know, what it showed me, what Glenn showed me was that a leader could be, you know, respectful and tough at the same time, and it was good to see in him. And then later in my career, one of the vice chairmen was a gentleman named John Opie, and John was really operationally really sharp, and, and I, I love both those guys and learned uh, – uh, so much from them on, on the board. I always liked uh, Shelly Lazarus was a board member for a long time, and I always very much enjoyed talking with her. And, and uh, if I had a problem or something on my mind, let's talk about some of your favorite books. What are your all-time favorites, and what are you reading now? So um, let's see. My my uh, all-time favorite is Truman uh, by McCullough. Uh, because of, you know, it's kind of this great American story that, that any person could be president. And, and I thought that was remarkable. I love that one. I read a lot of military history because I think it's the best corollary to business because military history is a subject of failure. Like whoever fails the least wins. And sometimes <laughs> business uh, feels like that. I've read... I've read over the last, uh, oh, gosh, six months, a few books on the reconstruction in the U.S. after the Civil War, just as, you know, some of the seeds of some of the uh, uh, racial challenges we have today, uh, those have been good. And then uh, I still read novels. I'm reading all of the, there's a guy named C.J. Box that writes about a, a game warden in Wyoming called Joe Pickett, so... I mix history and novels and, and try to learn, but I'm an avid reader and, and uh, like to, like to, you know, I love to, love to read. If you like McCullough's Truman, if, if you haven't read his Wright Brothers, it's really quite outstanding. Really good. Yeah, no, very spe- spectacular. Somebody can't have worked at GE and not read Wright Brothers. <laughs> That's right. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who was just beginning their career and thinking about working either for a large conglomerate or a manufacturer? I think uh, stay curious. You know, again, I think curiosity is the, is the sole attribute that every successful person I've ever met has, whether it's Jeff Bezos or Fred Smith or, I, you know, I could go down the list of great people I've known. I just think curiosity is such an important part of being a lifelong learner, and being a lifelong learner is uh, really critical. I I say in my class, you know, when, when I when I teach at business school, I, I said like everybody in that room has the capability to be CEO of a Fortune 500 company, right? 
Mm-hmm. But, but you have to ask yourself kind of three questions. Uh, how fast can I learn? How much can I take? And how much will I give? Well, like by how much can I take is like you're going to get punched in the nose so many times. Some people just give up, right? It's not because they're not smart enough. They just give up. But you also have to be willing to give back to others if you want people to follow you. So how much can you learn? How much can you take? How much will you give? Answer those three questions, and, and you can start your career. Huh, interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of leadership, running a big company, the entire industrial process today that you wish you knew 30 or so years ago early in your career? Oh, I think the importance of speed. I think the importance of speed. I just think sometimes when you work at a big company, you never feel the urgency the way you need to. And what I see in Silicon Valley, what they get right is they just they just move quickly. They make mistakes, but they they don't wallow in their mistakes. They they just keep moving. So I think uh, I I wish sometimes you know Barry that I had worked for like twenty years, and before I became CEO, I took maybe a three year sabbatical in Silicon Valley. And then came back and became CEO. I would have right. run the place differently than I did. I think it, it, it's easy to move fast and break things when it's a three-person shop as opposed to a three hundred thousand-person yeah. shop. We have been speaking with Jeff Immelt. He is the former CEO of General Electric and author of the book Hot Seat: What I Learned Leading a Great American Company. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of our previous. 400 or so. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. You can sign up for our free daily reading list. You can see that at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack team that helps put this conversation together each week. Tim Harrow is my audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is my project manager. Michael Boyle is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than a destination. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all. All of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.